This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Coming up on the program, Craig Morgan will talk about Mullet Arena and the Arizona Coyotes. Uh, tonight, one of six games on the board, the Coyotes facing off against the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, Shana Goldman joins me in hour two as well for a tour around the NHL and also the weekend review as we wrap up every Friday here with our producer, Matt Marchese. Elliot Friedman, uh, are you alive and well after our marathon podcasting last night to say nothing of you working the San Jose-Toronto game? Uh, I'm good. I'm looking forward to seeing Marchese's haircut today. <laughs> it's always the highlight of the show. Uh, what time? Did, what time did you get out of the wrapper this morning? That was a late one for all of us. No, not not too bad. Uh, Eight thirty. Uh, not too bad today. I had a couple of errands to run, so uh, eight thirty is actually early for me. So it was a little bit of an earlier uh, morning. But you know, the key is, Jeff. I feel and look great. So my innards are exhausted by my my exterior is is really strong. There's there's a there's a Saturday Night Live Billy Crystal skit waiting to happen right there. You look yes. marvelous, Elliot Friedman. Um, there was a lot last night. Whether you know, I mentioned Brad Marchand. We should that was a great performance. Carter Hart with a great performance. Um, Connor Hellebuck for Winnipeg. You know, steals two points in a game the Jets weren't really in. Uh, L.A. throwing 44 pucks on him. He was fantastic. Uh, I want to get to the Maple Leafs, and I want to focus in on a couple of players specifically. But the headline. Hang on, just one sec. Night, just, just just one sec, Jeff. I do want to say I think it's possible. I think. It, hey, how you doing? Yeah. I think it's possible we 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 maybe get some Ethan Bear movement today. I I think it's possible. I'm not saying I'm guaranteeing it, but I think it's possible we get yeah. closure on this one. Yeah. If you if you feel like starting a fire, we can. No, that's, that's as much arson as I'm doing right now. Okay, so we'll stand by to see what's happening with the Carolina Hurricanes' right-shot defenseman who has yet to play a game this season. Um, the Canes are motivated to move him, and the player is certainly motivated to play. But speaking of the Vancouver Canucks, uh, yep. we heard Boudreau afterwards, like just the sense of relief in his voice. On a personal note, that's game numbers, uh, win number 600 for, for Boudreau. Yep. So congratulations uh, to him, and it's win number one for the season for the Vancouver Canucks. It wasn't pretty getting there, Elliot. Like there were squandered leads. There were you know yep. a lot of fights. There were misplays. There was... You know, uh, only throwing three shots on net in the third period, two of which go in. So the hockey gods smiling on Vancouver last night. What did you take away from that game yesterday? I think the sense of relief was the biggest thing, Jeff. There's there's no question about that. I have to tell you, when they went up 3-2 and Seattle went right down the ice on the open, on the next faceoff and scored, I just said there's no way they're going to win yeah. this game tonight, the Canucks. But they just... You, you can't let that happen to you. And I, I just felt that uh, that there was no way they were going to win. But to their credit, they, they found a way. They grinded it out. Um, you, you know, I, I think the, 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 the fights, to me, were a sign of how desperate the team was. And I, I have no doubt that their manhood had been challenged. Uh, and I think that that's one of the ways you answer to it. Um, it was a, a desperate, greasy win. And sometimes desperate and greasy is, it's like a hamburger, right? It tastes so good. So uh, I think that uh, it was, they, they needed it. They needed it. It was, it was huge. And, you know, but I'll tell you this, like tonight, 
it's funny. I, w- I was talking about this with someone this morning. Uh, I guess Ekman Larson and Myers, they both played like 26 minutes last night. And yeah. there's, uh, there's talk that Demko might go back to back. And someone said to me, you know, they're going to wear these guys out. And I said, you know what? That's true. But when, you're, when you've got two points in your first seven games and you're actually expecting to have a good year, there's no such thing as tomorrow. There's, there, there's no such thing as tomorrow. You're, you're pulling yourself out of a hole, and you're going to do whatever you can. The, the way that I look at it is this is treading water. No one's going to tell anyone treading water in the deep end, hey, stop working so hard to keep yourself alive, save some energy for later. It's like, well, if I don't do this right now, there's not going to be a later. Like, I understand, you know, I understand yeah. right now, burn the boats, uh, burn the bridges, all of it uh, for the Vancouver Canucks, whatever you can do to, uh, to eke out wins here and try to try to turn this thing around. Um, I don't know that anyone had, you know, Tanner Pearson uh, on their fight bingo card last night, but there it was. And JT Miller and the fights that you mentioned, Kyle Burroughs, etc. Um, I want to focus on Boudreaux quickly. And outside of all yep. the drama, like we focus so much. It's tough not to marry Boudreaux to the Canucks and what's happening right now. But if we can, let's remove Bruce Boudreaux away from what's happening at the Vancouver Canucks and just talk about Bruce Boudreaux the coach because 600 wins is remarkable and here's someone that you know even going back to his junior days as a player you know won the memorial cup was a great junior hockey player played with the marlboros in the early 70s he's won championships at every single level he's been involved in hockey he's won in various minor leagues as i mentioned as a player and junior the only thing that has eluded him is the stanley cup but when you look at the entire body of work for, for Bruce Boudreaux, what comes to your mind right away? Yeah, I, I think about when he got hired in Washington, we went down to the, to the city to do a piece on him. And I actually rewatched it uh, the other day. And the piece begins, you know, with him getting out of his car and, and I think walking into the practice facility. And it lists all of the places he's coached and with uh, with I've been everywhere, man, playing, and the the thing that really stuck. There were a few things that stuck out to me from that piece, and you know, one of them that he told was that for 22 years he coached before he got that job, and he he had one NHL interview for an assistant coach position with the Kings. Like, the thing, so he's got 600 wins, and he started late. If you really think about it, his NHL career as a coach started really late. And why did he get that job? Because the Capitals were losing and they were desperate. And finally, they just said, you know, Bruce, save us. And he did. I mean, well, you know, it helped. He had a guy named Ovechkin there and a guy named Backstrom there. But but Boudreaux was the guy who took off the reins and and really let them go. And I think that's the thing. you know, I, you know the thing about Boudreaux is, and I think this is important from time to time to be reminded of this. Like that, you can't judge the book by the cover. Um, you know, like I, I think sometimes people look at who are supposed to be leaders, and they're supposed to look and act presidential. Well, that's not the way that anybody would describe them, but that doesn't mean you can't be effective. And I think that's a good reminder that, that sometimes I think we, 
we look at the way people are supposed to look, the way they're supposed to appear, and we make our judgments based on that. And he's a reminder that that's not always a very smart thing to do. You know what else? And Because uh, when I think of Boudreaux, I think of that first year with the Washington Capitals as well. And I'll throw Mike Green into that mix as well because he had Mike Green with Hershey as well and really helped unleash uh, unleash, unleash him. And that became the OV pass on the power play, right? It was, and now it's John Carlson. But then it was Mike Green feeding him, feeding him grapes all day. Um, I think of when he took over from Glenn Hanlon as well. And it took until the final game. It was a, I think it was a 3-1 to win against the Florida Panthers. It was a Sunday afternoon game and the Capitals got into the playoffs and it really was a grind. But he sort of ushered in this interesting phenomenon. We all know the NHL is a copycat league. Oh, if this works, let's also try it. It worked for this team. Let's try it for our team. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what happened after Boudreaux got hired and there was success with Washington? A lot of American Hockey League coaches got hired, and teams noticed that these guys just weren't minor league coaches, but they could coach at the at the, uh, at the NHL level as well. Like you always look for, okay, so what's the what's the effect that certain coaches had on the NHL? To me, it is you know part of the Boudreaux effect is how we open the doors for AHL coaches to get NHL jobs. And I remember I asked him about it once. He said, "Yeah, it's true, but maybe I'm." It'll, it'll, it'll be too much of a success, and some of the, from the American League is going to take my job one day. But I, I always think of that, Freach. I always think about how, how he opened the door for AHL coaches. You know, it's, it's nice to see that that kind of paranoia never leaves you, right? Like, you know, that, that, that would be his reaction to you when, when, you, would, when you would say that. Um, so, you know, I, I think that if you remember... Uh, there started to be a real situation where teams started looking at, hey, if you if you hire an interim coach, you should be you can believe in success. Like a lot of times when you're hiring an interim coach during a season, what are you talking about, Jeff? You're talking about oh, we're going to finish the year two twenty six and five, and then we'll do a search, you know, the in the summer. Well, not long after Boudreaux was hired, you remember what Pittsburgh did. They changed coaches during the season, and they won a Stanley Cup. Yep. And I think that not only did he teach people that AHL coaches can coach, but I think he also gave you an idea that if you found the right person, there was no reason if you feel you had a good team that you couldn't rise out of the ashes with an, with an interim or a midseason replacement. And they did that with, just to refresh everyone's memories, with Dan Bilesma, who was called up from yes. Bruce Ray Scranton um, the, of, the, uh, of the American Hockey League. Um, okay, turning to Vancouver page here, um, I want to get your thoughts on what we uh, the game that you worked last night uh, with David Amber and Anthony Stewart. The San Jose Sharks beat the Toronto Maple Leafs in overtime. A couple of things that I was mentioning off the top. See if you're, you're with me or against me on this one. It seemed as if the Toronto Maple Leafs, at least in the first two periods... Really didn't, and I hate to, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of questioning someone's, you know, desire to play, but at times it really looked like, and we've seen this before, Montreal game, Arizona game, that there wasn't a strong interest to really be involved in those first two periods from the Maple Leafs. I want to get to that final goal by Eric Carlson and what we may read into it with, with John Tavares, but how did you see the, the first two periods as San Jose goes up 3-1? to one? I think we've seen, I think you said, I think we've seen this movie too much. I mean, look, they've played eight games and, and 
you know, it's overreaction season. Uh, but, you know, we, we, I think we've seen this a little bit too much, uh, Jeff. It's that when things uh, – what, tur- what turns games around for them? When they're flat and they've been flat a little too much for my liking, what turns things around for them? You know, against Dallas, they had a really bad first period, and then they got a ton of power plays, which they earned, and they turned that game around and they won that game. Winnipeg was probably their best game of the year. Last night at the end of the second period, they got that brilliant goal from all their talented players, and it got them a point. But what, what I really see there is a team that as a whole is not really good at changing momentum any other way than either getting power plays or getting uh, a great play by their elite players. And that can work, but it's not working enough. And what I, I think that one of the things that concerns me about them right now is, you know, the, your third and fourth lines, I mean, I know hockey's changed a lot, but your third and fourth lines are supposed to create some energy for you. And, uh, you know, maybe it's not fighting anymore, but it doesn't mean that you can't have a shift where you run over three people and you do something that just charges up your bench or your building and it changes the momentum. I just see a lot of stretches uh, in games right now where they're kind of, uh, there, there's just no energy there from them. And like Arizona, you saw that interview with Christian Fisher and Kyle. Like those Coyote oh, yeah. guys, they were wired to win and play that game. Um, you know, like San Jose, they hadn't won at home. They didn't get a great crowd last night, but that building was bananas when San Jose was really making runs at it. And I just think right now, I mean, what you control is your effort. And I'm, and I'm not saying they're not trying, but what I am saying is they're letting other teams dictate, in a lot of cases, the way these games are going to be played. And I think way too deep into games. And that is, like, they're not getting much out of their third and fourth lines. Um, you know, you heard Keith again last night talk about the defense. Like, that defense right yep. now, we're going to see how Dubas handles this because it's not, it, it's, it's, it's not good enough right now. And I think everybody sees it. One thing I wanted to get your thoughts on, um, I've watched that Eric Carlson overtime winner now a bunch of times. Uh, by yeah. the way, uh, if you haven't watched San Jose Sharks yet the, this season, people, uh, Eric Carlson's having a really nice start to the season. Uh, nine points in, in 10 games. He looks really good. And on that play, you know, three Maple Leafs are caught down low. They spring Eric Carlson on the turnover, and he's gone. All right, he's gone, and John Tavares is the first back checker. And we know that John Tavares is never going to be confused with Pavel Bure. I get that, but the 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 ice that Carlson creates between himself and John Tavares—if you're just following the camera and following the frame—Tavares is in it, and then after a couple of strides, he's nowhere to be found. You know, we we've talked before about you know what do you do with with John Tavares? Um, what do you do considering the foot speed uh, or or lack thereof? Is he miscast at this point in his career? Should he be a winger? 
I, I wonder at this point if, you know, everyone's trying to figure out, okay, what do the Maple Leafs need? Do they need to move John Tavares to the wing? Do they need more speed down the middle? I think it's, this one's a little bit unfair, Jeff, because if you watch that play, Eric Carlson's going downhill. He sees it. He see, When Meyer breaks up that pass, Carlson sees breakaway. And he's going downhill before anyone else is. Yeah, I know Tavares is not the swiftest skater. I think we all know that. But there was nobody was catching him on that play. Nobody. Because Tavares has to stop or turn. I don't remember exactly what he does. But he has to stop or turn and, and get going. And Carlson's already got a head start. And he's he knows what he's got what he can do. I, I don't think anybody was catching him there. I, like Tavares, the one thing I, I did say after the playoffs last year, I thought they were going to have to transition him to more of a winger role, and I still believe that. But I don't think you can blame him on that one last night. He was coming almost flat-footed, and Carlson saw it a mile away. The only thing that could have stopped Carlson last night was that door he couldn't open after his interview with Sean McKenzie. <laughs> Uh, that was pretty entertaining. Um, have a couple of minutes left here. Uh, want to get your thoughts on, well, listen, I mentioned Brad Marchand off the top, and we talked plenty about him on the podcast. If you have a quick thought now that we've had a, uh, a night to sleep on it and wake up and think about what we saw from Brad Marchand last night with the Boston Bruins, not exactly a, a shock to anybody. He's only Elliot, one of the best left wingers, and there's some really good left wingers. Uh, he's only one of the best left wingers in this generation of hockey. You may not like Brad Marchand, you may love Brad Marchand, but you recognize what any team would kill to have Brad Marchand. And uh, I will get over the fact that the Bruins and Marchand openly lied to us about when he was coming back because I, probably, because I get it. And look, like that, that last night was, like, again, I don't care what you think about him. I really don't. He could play for any team, anytime, any team, anytime. And I think the Bruins are handling this very smart. I, I don't think load management is going to become a big thing in the NHL. I think it's too hard to make playoffs, but I, I, it's clear to me that they have a plan and they're going to stick to that plan. And uh, I think that's a, a really smart thing to do. You know, that's an interesting comment about Marchand too, because I've always believed, Elliot, that one of the – one of the biggest compliments you can pay a hockey player is this. He could play in any era. Like, we've seen yes, the game could. change, even just in our lifetime, Elliot. You know, say nothing of, like, you know, 60s and 50s, etc. But pick any era of hockey. Can you not see Brad Marchand playing in that era? And not just playing, but thriving. He's skilled. He moves his feet. He has great hands. He's a little nasty. He doesn't get intimidated. He's an, like he's all those things that you look at. You say, okay, he could have hung in there with you know the Ted Lindsays of the world and the Gordy Howes and the Rocco Richards and the Jean Bellavos and the Phil Espositos and the Wayne Gretzkys and like you go through all the eras. And I don't think that there's one era that you look at and you say, yeah, you know what? I, I don't think that there's room for Brad Marchand there. For me, he plays in every single era of hockey ever since, you know, water froze and we, you know, dropped a little, you know, piece of vulcanized rubber on it. So what you're saying is he qualifies for the Merrick Outdoor Rink? I agree with you. I, I absolutely do. <laughs> I think that, uh, look, like I, like I said, it, um, 
I, I can't remember what year it was. I, I think it might have actually been the year where he was getting into a lot of trouble. I think I've, I I voted him. Like I've had years recently. Where I, there was one year I definitely voted him number two for the for the heart, and I think he's been in my top five a couple times. Um, you know, I, I think he is. I, I think he is uh, a difference maker. And you know, when did when was the when did everybody kind of realize it when he made that World Cup team in 2014? That was kind of his coming out party yes. for a lot of people outside of Boston. Um, you know, I, I just think there's a recognition that uh, even though he does some crazy stuff, um, and not everybody likes everything he does, there's an overall like. Like there's an overall like you don't come back as early as he came back without a real dedication to doing it, and that to me is like at the end of the day, I think you. I've always felt that you put up with people a little bit more. Maybe you don't agree with everything they do. Maybe you don't agree with everything they say. Maybe you don't like always how they carry themselves around the rink or your workplace, but. You know, as long as you're not hurting anybody, but you. St- but when it comes to okay, the meeting's starting or this project's got to get done, they're all in. They're prepared. They're all in, and they deliver great work. And you'll always have a bit more of the benefit of the doubt for people like that. And that's what I think of when I see Marchand last night. That you know, he he was back earlier than it had been predicted, and he was impactful. And that said to me that when when he said he was ready to play. He was ready to play. He wasn't just going out there to play 13 mm-hmm. minutes and get a leisurely skate. He was there to be a major imprint on a big win for the Bruins, a dominant win over Detroit. Uh, one final thing. Uh, I've had him on heart ballots twice. I think he's been mm-hmm. as high as three for me. You know where else he pops up on ballots? Selkie. Selkie. I know when it comes to Boston, we always talk about Patrice Bergeron. But you look at the the underlying numbers, like what happens to to, to puck traffic when when uh, when Brad Marchand is on the ice. He's a very stealthy, sneaky, sulky trophy candidate, and has been for a number of years. We just never talk about it because it gets dominated by Bergeron. Uh, I I I think that's I think it's hard. It, it, this league historically has been proven, Jeff. It's hard to win the Selkie if you're not a center. Which is kind of funny because yes, the Selkie true. was cre- uh, the Selkie was created for a guy who was a winger and won it what the first Bug four game. times, yeah, and and then yeah. and and then uh, and now it's almost impossible to win it as a winger. I, I I agree with you. I think I think Bergeron makes it very difficult for him to win, uh, but I uh, I think like I said, he's been as high as second in my heart ballot. I felt very comfortable. Uh, voting for him there, and uh, I think he's a hell of a player. The last winger to win the Selkie Trophy was... Was it Yuri Lettinen? Yuri Lettinen, bingo, from the uh, from the Dallas Stars. He was the last. That's how far back we have to go. Like, somewhere along the way, you would have thought that Hosa would have won one of them, or somewhere along the way, Mark Stone probably should have won uh, one of these things. But you're right, it's it's hard unless you're a center. Um, we got to hustle. Uh, we're up against it. All right, so we'll stand by to see what happens with uh, with Ethan Bear. Uh, if, as you suggest, we could see some movement there today, we'll be waiting with bated breath to see where he lands. Uh, always good. Thanks, Freed. We'll watch for you on, uh, on the Magic Eyeball tomorrow on Hockey Night. All right, see you there, Jeff. Take care, bud. There he is. There he is, Elliot Friedman from uh, 32 Thoughts on Hockey Night in Canada.